Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that uh, you have inclined to us to, to hear our prayers. And um, that you see us, not only now, but at all times and in all places, that your spirit goes with us, that we might enjoy your presence. We thank you that uh, you have made us temples of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That you are like a wall around us, protecting us and preserving us. And we pray that you would increase your number and that uh, the church would grow in maturity, in love, in humility, and in number. And that nations from all over the world would praise you as they are this very day. We pray that you'd be glorified in our praise here. You'd be pleased with the offering which we give to you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we are again uh, visiting the community of people that God brought back from exile after the sin of their fathers and mothers had resulted in expulsion from the land of God's promise and presence, kind of like the Garden of Eden. In Zechariah, God's people have returned to Israel. And the fact of their return was a glorious thing. But the reality of their experience in the land was still difficult. They were a people in need of encouragement to continue working towards God's vision of his kingdom in a land that looked drastically unlike the model. They lived with a dissonance that often resonates still in the modern world, where the kingdom of the resurrected Christ appears at times to have made few inroads into the kingdoms of this world. In the midst of this restored people, a man named, there was a man named Zechariah. He was a, a prophet of God, and through him, God brought comfort and motivation for a people both ancient and modern. God's chosen method of communication with Zechariah in the first eight chapters of this book were, was visions. And we don't know what Zechariah experienced in his body, whether he was in a trance or whether he was asleep, but we do know what he saw. Last week, he saw different colored horses and horns being sawed off by craftsmen. This week, it's a man with a measuring line, right? Verse 1 opens with these words, I looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Think of a, a measuring line as a, a, a tape measure. It was a means of, of measuring something. In this instance, the city of Jerusalem. When Zechariah asks the man where he's going, the man replies in verse 2 that he's going to Jerusalem to measure it, to see what is its width and its length. A man with a measuring line is not an uncommon image in the Old Testament. It's used in several other places, but the purpose for measuring a place can either be hopeful or concerning. Sometimes God orders a city to be measured as a, a sign of impending judgment. He's sizing it up. 
in preparation for his opposition of the city. Other times, however, God orders a city to be measured because he intends to build. And this is the case in Zechariah's image. God has commissioned the man in Zechariah's vision to measure Jerusalem in order to express his intention of rebuilding that holy city. And this would have been an affirmation for his people that they wanted the same thing that God wanted. Oftentimes we don't know whether our desires match God's desires and we're working in the dark. We discover that our desires do not match God's will only after much frustration and disappointment. But God is sparing his people that experience with this vision. God and his people desire the same thing, to rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city where God lived together with his people. And he speaks to them in ways that would have delighted his people, desperate for a return to their homeland and to God's favor. In verse 6, he clarifies that it was him working through the Persian king who called his people back to Israel from the foreign land of their sin. Up, up, he said. Flee from the land of the north, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven. Up, escape to Zion, you that live with daughter Babylon. These words would have delighted his people. Cyrus, the the king of Persia, was the one who had ordered an edict permitting the Hebrews to return to their homeland. But God is reminding them here of those famous lines from Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Cyrus was an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. God sent his people into exile through his servant Nebuchadnezzar. And he was bringing them back through his servant Cyrus. Both were pagan kings, but both were accomplishing his will, one to punish, the other to restore. It would have delighted the people to learn that God was the one active in their restoration. It was God who was delivering them from the land of their sin, the land where he had sent them in judgment. Of his own initiative, he was relenting, and he was transitioning now to a time of restoration. It wasn't because the people to whom he was extending such immense grace had suddenly become perfect. The beginning of Zechariah itself begins with a call to penitence. No, his decision to show grace was his own prerogative. He had his own reasons. Even more comforting were the reasons he provided for this change. He was motivated by his love. In verse 8, he calls his people the apple of his eye. And in verse 12, he names them as his inheritance, a people he has chosen and continues to choose out of any other people on the earth. The love that God has has for his people had apparently not waned during the exile. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses sang a song years earlier recounting God's power and kindness when he rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt. And in that song, he referred to God's people for the first time as the apple of his eye. Well, in Zechariah 3, God is making it known that he feels the same way about his people returning from their exile in Babylon and Persia. They are the apple of his eye. He loves them. 
Right? And just as Philip and, and Heather Thurman will renew their marriage vows at the end of this month by reiterating their choice of one another out of all the available people on the face of the earth, so God says the same to his people. I again choose Jerusalem as my inheritance to live with, to love and to cherish, to have and to hold through sickness and health for better or worse, for richer or poorer, not even death can part us. God's act of redemption in bringing his people back from exile in the land of their sin and restoring them to favor despite their persistent sin is an act of of gracious love. Therefore, the man trotting off to Jerusalem is a hopeful image. He's making measurements for a new home where God will lovingly and graciously live with his people forever. But in Zechariah's vision, the man is stopped right? In verses three and four, an angel shows up demanding that someone stop the man with the measuring line. It's an urgent command for unlike a whistle-wielding lifeguard, he yells, don't walk, run. The message for the man with the measuring line is don't waste your time. God has a different vision for Jerusalem, which we hear laid out in verses four and five. Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and animals in it. For I will be a wall of fire around it, says the Lord. I will be the glory within it. You see, city walls were incredibly important in the ancient world. They were a means of defense when an invading army came knocking. All the residents would rush inside the city and hide behind the walls. But Jerusalem is to be a city without physical walls. There will be no brick or mortar. Instead, God will be a wall for them which means that the city limits are flexible. There's always room for more residents. And it also means that God will be the one who protects and preserves his people in this vulnerable vulnerable position, not their own might or anything they can create. Now, this is a new idea. And here we learn that through this vision, God is communicating his intention to create something new out of what is familiar. He does not intend to merely turn back the clock to return to the glory days, but to move forward with a a greater fulfillment of his original promises to his people. While God is, is speaking to his people in ways that would have delighted them in their familiarity, he's also speaking to them in ways that would have confused them through their novelty. God is sharing plans for a new community of faith with characteristics differing from what his people would have expected. And the first thing that is different is the makeup of his people. In verse 11, in the midst of God calling his people back from the land of their sin and in the midst of promising to live with them forever, he says that many nations shall join themselves to the Lord on that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst. This is a fundamentally different way of thinking about the identity of God's people when compared to the ethnocentric view that God's people had adopted of themselves. What God is saying here is that his kingdom will be full of people from every nation, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. This is why God showed Zechariah that Jerusalem will have no walls because the inclusion of the Gentiles would cause such a population boom that that old city could never hold everyone. 
And when you begin thinking about the city of Jerusalem trying to accommodate millions of people who now call it home, you come to realize that God's not actually talking about the restoration and renovation of the physical Jerusalem in this vision. He is using the image of a wallless Jerusalem to explain the new thing he is doing. God is establishing a kingdom on earth that permeates cities and nations all over the world. To be a citizen of God's kingdom does not require relocation to the Holy Land. It does not require that you circumcise your sons or pass on the bacon. In other words, belonging to this new vision of God's people does not require that you become something ethnically different than what you are. Rather, wherever you are, whoever you are, if you are united to Christ through faith, then God comes to live with you. He will be a wall around you to protect and guard you. He will live with you just like he lived in the temple at the center of Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, the apostle Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. And he quotes a passage from Leviticus for support, a passage that is similar to the vision of God's people in Zechariah 2. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul is saying that God's promise to live amongst his people is a promise made to all those who believe in Christ. Through faith in Christ, a person becomes a temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit lives within Christians so that they might be assured of God's presence in the lowest, the darkest, and the loneliest of places. And surrounding them on every side is God, protecting them just as walls of stone protected that holy temple long ago from anyone who would seek to do it harm. Not even death can remove God's people from his presence. For in Christ, he has demonstrated his intention to raise up all those who die in faith and give them new life. This is an expansive view of God's people. But if the Gentiles, if we are included, then we too inherit the gracious and kind ways God deals with his people in bringing them back from the land of their sin. We remarked earlier that God sent a sinful people into exile, and he brought a sinful people back from exile. The exile did not reform or perfect his people. They remained sinful, and it was necessary to call them to penitence. In bringing them back, God was not rewarding them with something they deserved, but instead he relented of his judgment as an act of grace. And we see now in the fullness of time, that he relented of his judgment because he was looking ahead in history to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. He relented in anticipation of the satisfaction he would experience in Jesus. You see, Jesus died in place of God's people. You might say that Jesus was sent into exile. The land of death was certainly foreign to the living God. But he was sent there in order that he, in order that we might be brought back, in order that we might experience God's grace and hear him once again call us the apple of his eye. He experienced the wrath of God in order that we might know God's love. 
a love that perseveres through sickness and health, through good times and hard times, through riches and poverty. With an eye towards Christ, this is how God dealt with the people he brought back from Babylon and Persia. And now with Christ standing before him with the scars in his hands and side, pleading our case, he delivers us from the land of our sin and he bestows upon us grace upon grace upon grace. The makeup of God's people is completely different in this vision because God includes us. His vision extended all the way into the present. And there he saw us, the most unlikely residents of Jerusalem. On account of Jesus Christ, though, that is what we are. In fact, each and every Christian becomes a miniature copy of that holy city with God graciously living within us, surrounding us on all sides. But before we move on from this vision in Zechariah 2, there's one more thing we must point out that's different about God's vision of his people. And that is the posture of God's people. When the angel relays to the man with the measuring line, God's vision of a city without walls, he says that God will be a, a wall of fire around it and the glory within it. And for anyone who truly experiences the grace and love of God, he becomes their glory. He is the end of all boasting about any goodness or distinction in ourselves. It was God who, through Jesus Christ, brought us back from the land of sin in which we were happily living. It is his grace, motivated by his love alone, that is our salvation. Therefore, if we're to boast, we have only Christ to boast about. He made us his inheritance, and it's therefore his prerogative to bring into his kingdom whomever he likes. Every citizen of God's kingdom must therefore accept these two things. One, that they have been made a citizen not by right, but by God's grace. His grace alone must be their glory. And two, that the walls are movable. There's always room for more people. It's a habit of humanity to glory in God's grace, but then set up hurdles or stumbling blocks in the way of anyone else who might seek entrance into God's kingdom. It's our tendency to rejoice in God's forgiveness and then obsess about the sins of others. We get into God's city and we pull up the drawbridge. This is what the Hebrews did in requiring circumcision and keeping kosher. They put qualifications on God's grace and in so doing, prevented people from fully experiencing the transformative power of his grace. We do it all the time as well. But such a posture is opposed to grace. If we are to glory in God and in his grace, then we must be the ones holding the door open for even our enemies to enter in. There's always room for more in a city with movable walls. And God is always bringing more people into his kingdom. The prophet Jonah objected to the job of going to Nineveh because he believed they were bad people. In his view, they didn't deserve the grace of God. He was mad when God gave it to them. But their badness, quote unquote badness, was precisely why God sent Jonah to them. 
By refusing to go, Jonah only demonstrated that he did not understand grace. He thought that one entered the kingdom by being good. He thought the kingdom was his by right or by birth. But if anyone is a citizen of God's kingdom, it is by grace alone. And so God sends us into the world and into the lives of quote unquote bad people to invite them into the arms of a gracious and loving God who desires to bring them back from the land of sin, just as he has us. He will make room for them. He will lead them in penitence. He will purify and protect his church. Remember, he is a wall of fire around his kingdom. He requires repentance from every single person who comes to him, who's experienced his grace, but his grace always precedes and motivates our penitence. He draws us in. He secures us by his love before he demands that we die. We often put it the other way around. We want people to act like Christians before they've tasted the grace, goodness, and glory of Christ. And so God's vision for his kingdom is that it's full of an unlikely people who have experienced his grace and glory in him alone, who then go out and invite others to come, taste, and see that the Lord is good so that he might begin his work of purification in their hearts and the walls of God's kingdom require expansion. Does this vision match who we are at First Pres? Do we glory in God alone? Or do we glory in our intelligence and the neatness of our lives? Do we invite people who are bad to church? Or do we judge and scoff at them from within these sacred walls? Do we think that within these sacred walls there's only good people? Do we even have meaningful engagement in the lives of people who don't know Jesus? Are our lives defined by gratitude or by an insatiable desire for more? God expanded the walls of his kingdom. He made you citizens by his grace. He will never leave you or forsake you. And on the day of your death, he will be your guard and your guide. Let's glory in that vision, for it is our reality. And together, let us invite the world to come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. There's plenty of room. For the grace of God is eternal and boundless, and the walls of his kingdom are movable. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.